0: Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word comes from, yet everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Everything from mountaintop beauty and deep forest to meth heads and extreme prejudice. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed downright unbelievable and tormenting historical atrocities. They have lived through everything from hauntings to cryptic creatures that show up and wreak havoc on their homesteads. The worst creature, though, may be man himself. I, being born and raised in these Appalachian Mountains, know that nothing is beyond a pale of belief, no matter how fantastic it sounds. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has a long legacy of unending tales and adventures. Come with me as I take you on a fantastic journey through these mountains, where things are not always as they seem. I guarantee you it won't be anything like you expected. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Season 2 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Doing good friends, thank you for stopping by again today. We all can agree that war is hell. It's very easy for those on the ground wearing those boots out in the middle of it all to become downright furious with the rules of engagement written by those who sit behind a desk in Washington, D.C. Arguably, one of, if not the most frustrating, of that type of situation was the Vietnam conflict. During that era, we lost over 58,000 brave Americans who hit the ground with one set of rules and would be changed to another than another. It was very easy for those in the front to begin to think that they were being dragged out into a quagmire to be nothing more than cannon fodder and were helpless to do anything about it. That in itself led to all kinds of problems on the battlefield. Have you sit down and let me tell you about a man from Appalachia who stopped a massacre from happening. Now, Hugh Clowers Thompson, Jr. was born on April 15, 1943, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States of America, to Wessie and Hugh Clowers, His paternal grandfather was full-blood Cherokee Native American, and his ancestors were victims of the ethnic cleansing policies and actions that resulted in the Indian Removal Act, most notably the Trail of Tears, of course. Hugh grew up hearing the stories of the misery that can be perpetrated upon people by, well, other people. In 1946, the Thompson family moved from Atlanta to Stone Mountain, Georgia, Hugh's brother and only sibling, by the way, Tommy, was born in 1938 and served in the United States Air Force during the Vietnam War. Hugh grew up a member of the Boy Scouts of America and his family was actively involved in the Episcopal Church. Hugh's father educated his children to act with discipline and integrity. The Thompson family denounced racism and ethnic discrimination in the United States and helped as many ethnic minority families in their community as they could possibly muster. Coming from a working class family, Hugh plowed fields and later worked as an assistant for a funeral mortuary to set up and support his family during his teens. Hugh graduated from Stone Mountain High School on June 5, 1961. Following graduation, he enlisted in the United States Navy and served in a, a Naval Mobile Construction Battle, <clears throat> Battalion in Naval Air Station in Atlanta as a heavy equipment operator. He met, fell in love with, and married Palma Broughton in 1963. In 1964, he received an honorable discharge from the Navy and went back home to Stone Mountain to live a quiet life and raise his family with his wife he studied mortuary science and became a licensed funeral director but when the vietnam war officially began he felt obligated to return to military service and enlisted in the united states army and completed the warrant officer flight program training at fort walters texas and fort rucker alabama and in late december 1967 at the age of 25 Hugh was ordered to go to Vietnam and ascend to Company B, 123rd Aviation Battalion of the 23rd Infantry Division. On March 16, 1968, Hugh's world changed forever. Hugh and his Heller oh 23 Raven Observation helicopter crew, including Lawrence Colburn, who was the gunner, and Glenn Andriata, the crew chief, were ordered to support Task Force Barker's search and destroy operations in Son Mai Quang Gai Province. Son Mai village was made up of four similar hamlets called Mele, Ma Ke, Ke Lu, Tu Kung, and was highly suspected by the United States Army military intelligence of being a Viet Cong stronghold. Army intelligence concerning the presence of the Viet Cong in Son Mai was inaccurate, though. The truth was that the village population was mostly made up of neutral, unarmed rice-farming families. Reconnaissance aircraft, including Hugh's very own OH-23 crew, flew over Son Mai and hadn't received so much as a rock thrown their way. So at 7.24 on the morning, without validating any intelligence reports, Whatsoever, and for whatever reason popped into whoever's mind, the United States Army turned her howitzers loose and shelled Son Mai, killing many of the Vietnamese farmers living there. Then after the shelling was over with, Company C, 1st Battalion, 20th Infantry Regiment of Task Force Barker, led by Captain Ernest Medina, moved into Son Mai, locked and loaded. Upon re- moving into Son Mai, Officers and soldiers of the Company C moved through the Sonma village and roundabout thereof, murdering civilians, raping women, and setting fire to their homes, which was nothing more than grass huts which went up like tinder boxes. First platoon of Company C, commanded by Lieutenant William Callie, forced about 70 or 80 of the people, which were mostly women and children, into a nearby drainage ditch and flat out murdered them with knives, bayonets, grenades, and m-14s. Hugh said, we kept flying back and forth, reconning in front and to the rear, and it didn't take very long until we started noticing a large number of bodies everywhere. Everywhere we'd look, we'd see bodies. Those were infants, two and three and four, maybe five years old. Women, very old men, no draft age people whatsoever. That's when we realized that something just wasn't making sense. Now, Hugh and his crew, who at first thought the artillery had caused all the civilian deaths on the ground, saw the Americans murdering the villagers after a wounded civilian woman they requested medical evacuation for was pounced on and murdered right in front of them by Captain Medina, the commanding officer of the operation. Then the crew saw a young girl about 20 years old laying in the grass. They could see that she was unarmed and wounded in the chest. They marked her with smoke because they saw a squad not too far away. The smoke was green, meaning that it was safe to approach. Red would have meant the opposite. They were hovering about six feet off the ground, not more than 20 feet away. When Captain Medina came over, kicked her, stepped back, and finished her off with a shot to the head. He did it right in front of us. When we saw Captain Medina do that, it finally clicked. It was our guys doing all the killing and committing war crimes, Hugh thought. Immediately after the ex- execution, Hugh discovered the irrigation ditch was full of Lieutenant Kelly's victims. Hugh then radioed a message to <clears throat> accompanying gunships at the Task Force Barker headquarters, saying that it looks to me like there's an awful lot of unnecessary killing going on down here. Something ain't right about this. There's bodies everywhere. There's a ditch full of bodies that we saw. There's something wrong here. Hugh spotted some movement in the ditch, indicating that there was civilians alive in it. He immediately landed to assist the victims. Lieutenant Callie approached Hugh, and the two exchanged a very uneasy conversation. Hugh, what's going on here, Lieutenant? Lieutenant Callie replied, This is my business, Hugh. What is this? Who are these people? Lieutenant Kelly, just following orders. And Hugh said, orders? Whose orders? Lieutenant Kelly, just following, and then Hugh cut him off in mid-sentence, saying, But these are human beings, unarmed civilians, sir. Lieutenant Kelly said, Look, Thompson, this is my show. I'm in charge here. It ain't your concern. Hugh said, Yeah, well, great job, by the way. Lieutenant Kelly said you better get back in that chopper and mind your own business. Hugh said, well, you ain't heard the last of this. As Hugh was speaking to Lieutenant Kelly, Sergeant David Mitchell fired into the irrigation ditch, killing any civilians that might happen to still be alive. Hugh and his crew, in disbelief and shock, returned to their helicopter and began searching for civilians they might be able to save. They spotted a group of women and children and an old man or two in the northwest corner of the village, fleeing from advancing soldiers in the second platoon. <clears throat> Immediately realizing that the soldiers intended to murder the Vietnamese civilians, Hugh landed his helicopter between the advancing ground unit and the villagers, and he turned to Coburn and Andriotta and ordered them to shoot the men in the second platoon if they attempted to kill any of the fleeing civilians. While Coburn and Andriotta trained their guns on the second platoon, Hugh Located as many civilians as he could, persuaded them to follow him to a safer location, and ensured their evacuation with the help of two UH-1 Huey pilots he was friends with. Now, low on fuel, he was forced to return to the supply airstrip miles outside the village. Before they departed the village, Andreata spotted a spotted movement in the irrigation ditch full of bodies. The helicopter looped around and then set down quickly near the edge of the ditch. Andrietta and his had man, maintained visual contact with the spot where he saw the movement, and he darted out of the aircraft as soon as it touched the ground. Hugh got out and guarded one side of the chopper, and Coburn guarded the other. <clears throat> Andrietta had to walk on several badly mangled bodies to get where he was going. He lifted a corpse with several bullet holes in it and a torso lying there, and lying under it was a child, about five or six, covered in blood and obviously in a state of shock. The child's name was do Ba and was pulled from the ditch, and after failing to find any more survivors, Hugh's crew transported the child to a hospital in Quangay. After transporting the child to the hospital, Hugh flew to the Task Force Barker headquarters called landing zone Dotty and angrily reported the massacre to his superiors. His report quickly reached Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker, the operations o- <clears throat> overall commander. Now, Colonel Barker immediately radioed ground forces to cease the killings. After the helicopter was refueled, Hugh's crew returned to the village to ensure that no more civilians were being murdered and that the wounded were evacuated. Hugh made an uh, official report of the killings and was interviewed by Colonel Orrin Henderson, the commander of the 11th Infantry Brigade of the 20th Infantry. Concerned senior American division officers canceled their similar planned operations by Task Force Barker against the villagers of Quang Ghe province, preventing the additional massacres that may have been planned and uh, further if not thousands uh, of more Vietnamese civilians being murdered. Initially, commanders throughout the American chain of command were successful in covering up the Malay Massacre. Hugh quickly received the Distinguished flying, flying Cross for his actions at Malay. But the citation for the award fabricated some events. For example, praising Hugh for taking to a hospital a Vietnamese child caught in intense crossfire. It also stated that his sound judgment and greatly Enhanced Vietnamese American relations in the operation area. And just like an Appalachian will do when forced to eat an excrement sandwich, he threw the citation in the trash. hugh continued to fly observation missions in the OH 23 and was hit by enemy fire a total of eight times. In four of those instances, his aircraft was lost. Folks, as they say in the military, that man had a pair. I know that the first time that I had <clears throat> I'd been shot down and survived, they'd have had to drag me back into one of them. In the last incident, his helicopter was brought down by enemy machine gun fire, and he broke his back in the resulting crash landing. That one ended his combat career in Vietnam. He was evacuated to a hospital in Japan and began a long period of rehabilitation. So I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, when news of the massacre finally broke, Hugh simply repeated his account to then-Colonel William Wilson and then-Lieutenant General William Pierce during their official Pentagon investigations. Then, in late 1969, Hugh was summoned to Washington, D.C. to appear before a special closed hearing of the House Armed Services Committee. There he was, sharply criticized by Congressman, in particular uh, Chairman Mandel Rivers, who were anxiously anxious to play down the allegations of the massacre by the American troops, you know, like they do when they're the ones in charge that issued the order to do the thing in the first place. Congressman Rivers publicly stated that he felt Hugh Thompson was the soldier or the, was the only soldier at Malay who sh- should be punished for turning his weapons on fellow American troops unsuccessfully in an attempt to have him court-martialed, of course. But because of that, he was vilified by many Americans for his testimony against the United States Army personnel. He recounted in a CBS 60 Minutes television program in 2004 that he'd received death threats over the phone. Dead animals on his porch, mutilated animals on his porch for some mornings when he got up. And now, as messed up as the politicians made this conflict... I do feel it only fair to tell both sides of the story here. Although the U.S. Army had tried to sweep all of it under the rug, it turned out that the rug just wasn't big enough and it all came rolling out. Lieutenant Kelly and his men <clears throat> had systematically murdered between 300 and 500 innocent Vietnamese civilians and burned their entire village to the ground. Now, Lieutenant William Kelly turned out to be the only soldier charged for the Malay Massacre, Lieutenant Kelly was born in June of 1943 in <clears throat> Miami, the son of a World War II veteran. Young William had mixed feelings about being or following in his father's military footsteps. He attended military academies because he had dropped out of high school. Then when William tried to join the army <clears throat> in 1964, he was rejected. It was only after working at a handful of dead-end jobs yeah, folks that's not hard to do you know when you back then the army was a little bit tougher in standards on how, who they accepted and it wasn't wasn't really easy to get into until they need you like this but for the war in vietnam started to escalate you know those standards of course relaxed somewhat like the big talking heads do <clears throat> this drew william back to the military whether he liked it or not once he heard that he'd Draft board was looking for him. He went on ahead back and enlisted. After graduating Officer Candidate School, which is nothing to sneeze at, folks, Lieutenant Kelly deployed to Vietnam on December 1st, 1967, as a member of the 11th Light Infantry Brigade and a platoon leader in Charlie Company. <clears throat> he was sent to Quang province to fight the Viet Cong. A tall order for a young lieutenant fresh out to the battlefield without any fighting under his belt at all. The fact that he'd never received a commission was a shock to anybody that's ever been in the service, too. Apparently, that was to give those above him some tall grass to hide in if anything ever went south under his command. Now, i got to stop here and say this about Officer Candidate School. The main thing drilled into your head during the training is to follow orders to the letter, no matter what. Don't think... The thinking was already done by the people who are paid to be above you. All you need to do is what you're told to do and shut up. And sure enough, Lieutenant Kelly said later that nobody said there would be innocent people there. It was drummed into us that you need to be sharp on guard. And as soon as you think these people won't kill you, you're dead. So in combat, you haven't got friends, you've got enemies. Over and over at OCS they heard that, and he told himself that he'll act as if I'm never secure, and as if everybody in the battlefield in Vietnam, except me, was my enemy. Well, after an uneventful couple of weeks, Charlie Company was attached to Task Force Barker, named after its commander, of course, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker. Colonel Barker had orders to seek out and destroy the Viet Cong 48th local 4th Battalion, the 48th, was an unusually effective and maddeningly elusive unit. Throughout February of 1968 into March, their bloody traps and mines terrorized the Americans. So in mid-March, it seemed that Charlie Company might finally have a chance to strike back, and that was the recipe that led to the complete massacre that we just heard about. Multiple other soldiers were tried for participating or trying to cover up the massacre, but none of them were punished, only William Calley. On March 29, 1971, he was found guilty. He was charged with premeditated murder of at least 22 Vietnamese civilians. Lieutenant Calley's conviction wasn't met with roaring approval from the American public, though. A 1971 Gallup poll found that 79% of Americans, pro and anti-war alike, felt that Lieutenant Kelly had just got the short end of the stick here. Tens of thousands of people wrote Lieutenant Kelly letters of support. The public pressured the White House to give him a pardon, and politicians, as always, holding their fingers to the wind just to sense the direction was blowing, piled on as well. Governor Jimmy Carter, who had run for president in 1976, urged his fellow Georgians to honor the flag as William Kelly had done. President Richard Nixon had initially called the Malay Massacre an abhorrent to the conscience of all the American people. But he, too, changed his tune to align with the public sentiment. He reduced Lieutenant Kelly's sentence to house arrest. His term was finally cut from life to 20 years, then from 20 years to 10. He served three and a half before he walked free. William Kelly kept out of the public eye until 2009 when he apologized for his actions at a Kiwanis Club meeting in Columbus, Georgia. He stated, there is not a day that goes by that I do not feel remorse for what I've done and what happened at Malay. I feel remorse for the Vietnamese who were killed, their families, for the American soldiers involved in their families, too. I am very sorry for what happened. After his Vietnam service, Hugh Thomas Thompson was assigned to Fort Rucker to become an instructor pilot and later received a direct commission, attaining the rank of captain and retired as a major. He retired from the army in 1983. Hugh then became a helicopter pilot for the oil industry operating in, in the Gulf of Mexico. In 1988, an English documentary film producer, Michael Belton, working for Yorkshire Television, managed to contact Hugh through his mom and, and them, you know how they do. His mom was then widowed and living in Texas. At that point, Hugh <clears throat> had all but disappeared from public life. Mr. Belton had contacted former crew member Lawrence Colburn and put Hugh and Colburn in touch with each other after a gap of nearly 16 years. Both Hugh and Coburn had been trying to find each other, but just hadn't been able to do it. Hugh was living in Lafayette, Louisiana, and Coburn near Atlanta, Georgia. They quickly arranged a reunion. Mr. Belton spent a long weekend with Hugh discussing the events at Malay. It proved to be the beginning of a long friendship which lasted the rest of Hugh's life. Both Hugh and Coburn were interviewed for the film Four Hours in Malay in 1989 went on to win a British Academy Award and an International Emmy Award. The interview showed Hugh relating what he had witnessed at Malay, and when the book Four Hours in Malay was published, it prompted a campaign to have the heroism of Hugh and his helicopter crew recognized. Several senior figures of the U.S. military supported the campaign, as did President George H.W. Bush. Hugh and Coburn were invited to speak to a wide range of audiences about the ethics of warfare, including the West, at West Point, a conference in Norway, and a, at Connecticut College in New London, where they were each awarded an honorary doctorate. In 1998, Hugh and Coburn returned to the village of Sonmai, where they met some of the people they had saved during the killings, including Tha Nyung and Pham Thai Nut two women who had been part of the group about to be killed by Brooks' second platoon. Hugh said that the survivors or to the survivors I just wished our crew that day had been able to help more people than we did. He reported that one of the women they had helped out had come up to him and asked why don't the people who committed these acts come back with you. He said that he was just devastated by that question but that she finished her sentence so we could forgive them. They dedicated a new elementary school for the children of the village. Hugh went on to serve as a counselor in the Louisiana Department of Veterans Affairs. In 1998, exactly 30 years after the massacre, Hugh and his two other members of his crew, Glenn Andriotta and Lawrence Colburn, were awarded the Soldier's Medal. Of course, Andriotta had passed on, so he got his posthumously. The United States Army's highest award for bravery, not involving direct contact with the enemy. It was the ability to do the right thing, even at the risk of their own personal safety, that guided these soldiers to do what they did, then Major General Michael Ackerman said in the 1998 ceremony. The three set the standard for all soldiers to follow. At the age of 62, after extensive treatment for cancer, Hugh was removed from life support and died on January 6, 2006 at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Pineville, Louisiana. Colbert came from Atlanta to be by his bedside. Hugh was buried in Lafayette, Louisiana with full military honors, including the three-volley, 21-gun salute, and a helicopter flyover. On February 8 of that year, Congressman Charles Bustani made a statement in Congress honoring Hugh Thompson, stating that the United States has lost a true hero in the state of Louisiana that has lost a devoted leader and dear friend, a man who came from the Appalachian Mountains. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast and don't forget to subscribe and follow, please. If you like even more episodes of both podcasts and access to The Deviant Report, consider becoming a subscriber for $1.99 a month for extra episodes of all three. Please join us on Facebook group Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend podcast where we can discuss everything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and I hope the ragweed is gone by then. (laughs) I'll see you then. (coughs)